chapter 37. So I'm going to tell you two things about chapter 37. One thing is that it is wrapping up the discussion that we began in chapter 35. Remember, in chapter 35, the Bainini began to question the entire value of a behaviorally based Judaism and was feeling uh, despondent about the fact that he realized that he's never going to vanquish the inner voice of the animal soul. That even if he maintains perfect behavior all his life, the, the conflict will remain. And he questions the value of it. And we begin to explain to him that the real value is not in the emotional perfection that the tzaddik possesses, but in the behavioral perfection that, of course, the tzaddik also possesses, but more importantly, even the regular old Benini, who has the same insides as Orosha, also possesses. And chapter 37 is wrapping up that discussion about the value of action, the primacy of action. That's the first thing that I want to tell you about this chapter. The second thing I want to tell you about this chapter for whatever it's worth. This was, for me personally, the chapter that really got me excited about Tanya. And I remember having studied Tanya, and even doing the daily Tanya, the Chitas. There's a study schedule for going through the entire Tanya every year but never feeling a, a, a very strong pull toward the subject matter um, until something clicked for me and it was in chapter 37 and what it was had to do with the fact that this was this is in the in the, in the 90s this is after the Rebbe had speak had been speaking quite uh, openly and vociferously about the imminence of Mashiach and the urgency with which everybody must participate in bringing Mashiach with acts of goodness and kindness. When CNN came to 770 to interview the Rebbe, they stood in line for dollars and the, uh, the camera crew came up to the Rebbe and they asked, what is your message to the world? And the Rebbe said, the Mashiach is ready to come, Mashiach is coming very soon, and that everybody should increase in acts of goodness and kindness, and this will bring Mashiach sooner. And uh, the, the, the reporter from CNN even asked again, said, so everybody should increase in acts of goodness and kindness, and the Rebbe repeated again, yes, everyone should, repeat, should increase in acts of goodness and kindness, and then Mashiach will come even sooner. 
So that was something that I was definitely very conscious of, this, this need to increase in goodness and kindness, acts of goodness and kindness, to bring Mashiach. But I didn't really understand the mechanics, why goodness and kindness was going to hasten the coming of Mashiach. I understood that obviously there's some cause and effect, but I did not understand the nature of the cause and effect. And then one day, I was studying chapter 37 of Tanya, and it hit me all of a sudden that this is something that you could actually understand. This is something you could actually wrap your head around. That it's not a mystery, it's not hocus pocus. That there is a very clear way of explaining how our mitzvahs, our acts of goodness and kindness, bring about a perfected world. And when I realized that Tanya is explaining to me how that stuff works, Tanya is taking the face off of the watch and showing me the gears and how they move. All of a sudden, it was like a whole new world opened up for me and I realized that this is what Tanya is. It's explaining to me how things work, how the universe works. Specifically, this most important um, issue of bringing Mashiach, which is supposed to be the focus of all of our lives. So I just wanted to share with you that for me, chapter 37 was a real, on, on a personal level, was a real eye-opener, and it's it, it, that, that's the chapter that got me hooked and got me going back to Tanya over and over again. And, uh, you know, it's one of those books that gets smarter every time you read it. And uh, so without further ado, let's, let's take a look at chapter 37. Chapter 37 begins with a line that I'm about to make a statement that can easily be verified through a computer search, although I've never done so. The, the, the Rebbe spoke thousands of hours in public, and the transcripts of his talks I'm saying even just the edited transcripts, the ones that were uh, overseen by the Rebbe himself and approved and edited, um, uh, they uh, amount in the tens of thousands of pages. It's quite voluminous, the whole body of work. And the Rebbe quotes and brings sources from across the entire um, tradition of, of uh, rabbinic literature from, uh, from Kabbalah and from uh, Gemara and from uh, Rishonim and Acharonim and of course from other Hasidic books. As I said, this could be verified quite easily with a computer search. But according to my very um, <coughs> informal assessment, 
I think the most often cited source is the opening line from chapter 37. I think. We could go verify it very quickly after this class. It's certainly, in my estimation, the most often cited line of Tanya. <coughs> and that is that all of the revelations that will take place in the era of Mashiach and in the era of the resurrection Remember, the era of Mashiach, like the uh, Mishnah says, is only a socio-political change. It is not yet an era where there are any changes in the natural order. So the first phase is Yemais HaMashiach, the Messianic Age, which is uh, brought about in, uh, in a natural way, or it is largely a... Uh, a, a shift merely in, uh, in, in uh, as far as the Jewish autonomy. And then there's another phase called Trias Amazing Resurrection, which is obviously a uh, change in the natural order. So the verse says, or the opening line of this chapter says, all of the godly revelations that will take place in the days of Mashiach and in the era of the resurrection of the dead depend upon our work and our actions during the duration of exile. That's a very, very important concept. As the Altarebbe goes on to say, this is what it means, schar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. What does it mean, the reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself? It means that mitzvahs have intrinsic value. There are two types of reward. There is a reward which is arbitrary and there is a reward which is cause and effect. Arbitrary reward would be like the kindergarten teacher tells the kids, okay, the class is very messy, everybody clean up your desks and teacher will give everybody a candy. That's an arbitrary reward because the act of cleaning up your desk does not generate a candy. The teacher has at whim chosen the candy as the incentive, but it actually has no relationship to the work that they are doing. And one of the proofs of that is that the teacher could have just as well rewarded them with a sticker or with praise or not at all. The teacher is simply randomly choosing an incentive and superimposing it into the situation. Contrast that <clears throat> with, uh, with an adult who doesn't need to be uh, bribed 
and you say, the house is a mess. I'm going to clean the house. And my reward for cleaning the house will be a clean house. So when we say the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself, it means <clears throat> that mitzvahs have intrinsic value. Mitzvahs have an effect. Mitzvahs do something. They cause a change in the world. And the reward of the mitzvah is that change. Like cleaning your room. The reward for cleaning your room is a clean room. That's what it means. All of the revelations that will take place in the era of Mashiach and in the era of the resurrection are dependent upon <coughs> our work and our actions during the duration of exile. It's not as if Hashem has told us, you be good boys and girls in exile, and eventually, at some point where I deem fit, I will decide that's enough already, you earned a reward, and I will stop the exile, and I will bring in the era of Mashiach as your reward. It's not like that at all. To the contrary, it is direct cause and effect. Do the mitzvahs and create the kind of world that Hashem can be at home in. Remember we spoke about in chapter 36, <clears throat> Hashem wanted a dwelling place in this world. How does Hashem get a world where he feels at home? Through our mitzvahs. Yeah. Is this in conjunction with the Rebbe said that he's done everything that he can and we have to do our part? I'm paraphrasing, but you know what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. Polishing the buttons, whatever. Is this what this connects to? The. I'm not sure what you mean by does it connect? If you mean. Does this process require everyone's participation? The answer is absolutely. And it's our job. Whatever Who's our? No, your. Your. No, there's no we. Sorry. Yes, my job. That's right. The Rebbe himself has done something. It is every individual's job. As we will see from this chapter of Tanya. As we will see, it, it, it will go on to make this very clear. That this is not something that you can stand to the side and let others take care of. And we'll, we'll explain why not. Because seemingly, if it's about you know cleaning the house, if you go sit on the couch and read magazines and let everybody else clean, okay, so they'll work a little bit harder, but the house will get clean. Why won't that work in this case? We're going to explain. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Let's build to it. So what does it mean? Increase in acts of goodness and kindness and Mashiach will come. How do my mitzvahs actually 
create the kind of world where Hashem can be at home? How does it work? What are the mechanics of it? So for this, we have to remember back to chapter 7. Can you remember back to chapter 7? Remember chapter 7? In chapter 7, we discussed good and evil in the world around us. And the fact that most klippa, we use the term klippa, is not irredeemably so, not permanently in a state of klippa, but it is, as of yet, unrealized potential holiness. And we call that klippas neuge, the shiny klippa. Remember we described that thin skin, the thin shell, the translucent shell that the spark of godliness shines through. And you can see sort of how it could be used in alignment with the will of its maker. Did I tell you back in chapter 7? Maybe I didn't. Did I tell you about the grapes? I did? You remember the grapes? You remember the grape thing? Let's say it again. <laughs> it's my bar mitzvah parsha, parsha shlach. When Moshe Rabbeinu sent spies to scout out the land, <clears throat> which essentially means to make up a plan how we're going to shift from this life in the wilderness where it's all about spirituality to life in the land where we're going to actually practice all of the Torah in actual deed. We're going to do all 613 commandments in actual deed. So they, they, they came back with ill report because they were afraid. They were afraid of the idea of applying Judaism in the real world. They wanted to leave it in theory. Um, but the setting of the story, it says uh, in the first Aliyah that the days when this happened was the season of the grapes. Yemei Bikure Ha'anovim. It was the day, it was the days when the grapes are ripe, when the grapes are in season. So the Rebbe asks a question, why is this an important way of establishing the time of that story? I mean, we could calculate the date based on other events. And the Rebbe explains like this, that there are different fruits <coughs> And they all have, you know, a, a husk or a shell or a peel. And mostly they are opaque. And you have to remove the peel before you, and, and then you see the fruit. And then if you open up the fruit, then you find the seed. But with a grape, it's interesting. If you hold a grape up to the light, it's translucent. You can see the seed through the skin. So you should know when you are preparing your own uh scouting of the land and assessing the viability of applying Torah in actual day-to-day -day life, you should be encouraged by the fact that the grapes are in season, that the world is really like a grape, that although it is covered in a shell, there's a facade of the mundane, which covers everything, but if you're sensitive and perceptive, you can make out how there's that seed, that, 
that kernel within it, which is really the godly potential that is waiting to be actualized. So if you remember from chapter 7, we spoke about how everything that is permissible to make use of is potentially holy, and it's just waiting for our engagement. It's waiting for us to put it to use. Now, we have free choice, and we could also misuse it, God forbid, and denigrate it, and bring it down temporarily into the realm of irredeemable klippa. But if we engage it properly, then we elevate it, and we make it holy. So, <clears throat> Al-Tadab explains like this. The world around us is mostly klippas noiga. It is mundane, but it's only a facade of being mundane. There is a godly spark in everything waiting to be tapped into. If you take physical objects and you put them to use for a mitzvah, for instance, he gives the example of mezuzah or tefillin. You take the cow hide and you turn it into a mezuzah, or you turn it into tefillin, you are lifting up that physical object from a mundane spiritual level to a holy spiritual level. So a little piece of the physical world has just been elevated without becoming dematerialized. It's not beam me up, Scotty, and it left the physical plane. It remains a physical entity, and yet its spiritual identity has shifted from being mundane to holy. What does that mean? It means that the physical world just became holy. He gives the example also of an esrug. When you bench a little of an esrug on sukkahs, you take this piece of fruit, which is neither evil nor holy, it's just mundane, but you use it for a mitzvah, you've elevated this physical object into something holy. Or another example he gives, you take money. Money's not evil, money's not holy, it's just a thing, it's just a tool, it's spiritually neutral. And you use it to give tzedakah, and you elevate it into something holy. In other words, what happens is this. Remember in chapter 33, when we spoke about, just a little bit, we spoke about um, the concealment of the face. I don't know if we spoke about it. You remember the concealment of the face? Okay. Remember we spoke about, I asked you a question. I said, does God want there to be cows? Well, there are cows, so... Since no one forced God to make the cows, I'm going to assume, yes, he wants there to be cows. Is it consistent with your theology that the reason for the creation of the world is that God so desired that there be cows? Do you believe that God created the world in order that there should be cows? Cows to teach us? No. No, why not? Okay, yes. It's one of the things that... Yes, and... This, this was his goal. No. To have cows. No. 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 But there is, remember we spoke, we spoke about this. 
the superficial will and the innermost will. And that, that's not binary, it's not just one or the other, there are gradations. There are stepping stones that get us closer and closer and closer to the innermost will. Ultimately, the innermost will is my desire. This is what I like. Remember we spoke about this? So Hashem likes tefillin. Why does he like tefillin? Well, there are ways of studying the chokhmah, the wisdom, the divine wisdom behind tefillin. You can understand some of why tefillin is a, is a mitzvah. But deeper than that, there's the rotzain, there's the desire. Hashem likes tefillin, you know why? Because he likes tefillin. That's what he likes. So when he makes cows, he, he wants to have cows, but not because that's the end game. What he really wants is tefillin. And actually, it's not even the tefillin that he wants, but he wants the Jewish man to put on the tefillin. So what we're talking about here is like this. Think about the whole world as concealing Hashem's will. Now, the whole world is a product of his will. Is everyone comfortable with that statement? Creation is a manifestation of divine will. He wants there to be a world, therefore there is a world. Okay. And yet, that will is hidden. Because if you look at most things, you don't see them as being obviously and apparently in line with Hashem's will. Some things are actually obviously and apparently at odds with Hashem's will. Those are the things that we refer to as irredeemable klippa, the shalosh klippa setameis that we learned about in chapter 8. But that's a very small fraction of the world around us. Most stuff is klippas noiga, is merely neutral. And you look at it, and it doesn't oppose God's will, but it doesn't overtly conform to his will, other than the fact that logically we know that it must be a product of his will or it wouldn't exist. So you're saying even the irredeemable clippers hmm? are a product of sure. his will? Sure. Even the irredeemable clippers uh, is, is a product of his will. That's right. Of course, everything's a product of his will. But like I said, that's a small fraction of the world around us. Most of the world around us is klippersnoiga, is mundane, is neutral, is potential holiness. So you look at the klippersnoiga, and it doesn't oppose Hashem's will, but it's not obviously and apparently aligned with his will. But let's say you take something like that, like a cow, and turn it into tefillin, and the Jewish man puts on tefillin, well, a Jewish man wearing tefillin is Hashem's innermost will. Why? Because that's what he wants. That's one of his 613 things that he likes. So you just took something in this world, left it in this world, very important, you didn't have to remove it from the physical plane, and yet you changed it from something that Hashem's will is hidden within to something through which Hashem's will is 
revealed. Now imagine cumulatively, if we could do that mitzvah by mitzvah to all of the physical world, or at least a certain critical mass of the physical world, where enough of the neutral or mundane world would be upgraded to overt holiness, where you would look at it and see in its functionality how it is aligned with Hashem's innermost will, namely the 613 commandments. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Not only can we transform the spiritual identity of these objects that we employ in doing the mitzvahs. Remember, when you do the mitzvah, you are engaging your animal soul. You cannot do a physical action without the energy of your animal soul as the motor. So not only are you upgrading the spiritual quality of the object which you are using, but you, at that moment, are upgrading the expenditure, at least, if not the essence, but the expenditure of your animal soul from its inherently neutral quality. Remember at the end of chapter 1, we learned that the animal soul is klipas neiga. And now, at least at that moment, or at least that amount of energy that you are expending in the mitzvah, it's gone from neutral to holy. But it doesn't end there. Where did your animal soul get its energy from? Where do you get energy from? You're all mothers. You know what you tell your kids. Food. Food. You got bubbly. You got to eat. If you don't eat, you're not going to have koyach. You have to eat. So now, you do a physical mitzvah with a physical object. You're elevating the state of the physical object you're using. You're elevating the state of the animal soul energy that you are expending. And you're elevating the state of all of the food that you consume in order to have replenished energy for your animal soul. There's a whole chain of elevation that's going on where various components of the physical world are being upgraded from neutral to holy. And here's why this task depends on you and not the person sitting next to you. You're aware of the concept that there in general are 600,000 Jewish souls. Obviously, there are more than 600,000 Jews, so there are offshoots of souls. That's not such a problem. Souls are energy. You can light a candle from another candle and still retain the flame from the original candle. But in general, there are 600,000 souls that were present at Sinai. The physical world was created for the sake of the Jewish people doing mitzvahs and refining and elevating the world. Each one of us has been allotted a portion, a portion of the physical world, 
that is your responsibility to uplift. If you don't do it, nobody else can. This is what it means. Nobody can steal somebody else's livelihood. What does that mean? It means that whatever physical possessions you were meant to have and meant to elevate, that's bashert. The sparks within that physicality have your name on them. So if you don't elevate them, who will? If you don't engage with the mundane world around you by doing mitzvahs of action, how will that transformation take place? And the answer is that it won't. And maybe some people have to come back in many reincarnations until they finish the job that they need bodies for. But eventually, we need everybody to clean up their spot. So the critical mass or the tipping point that we are waiting for depends on everybody participating, everybody doing their job in engaging the physical world through action mitzvahs that require physical exertion and the use of physical objects. Not only that, but the Alter Rebbe says, even the home that you live in, and the furnishings in your home, and the utensils that you own, everything that you make use of, and has a connection to your service of Hashem and performance of mitzvahs, also has experiences this, this, this upgrade, this elevation. So that the engagement with the physical world has this incredible power, this ripple effect through everything that you possess and that you make use of. And the cumulative effect and remember that this isn't just happening in your lifetime, this has been happening for many lifetimes. In fact, this task really started from uh, our father Abraham, when Hashem told him to go into the land, that's when the Avedas Habirurim, the task of refining the sparks really began. So that over the generations, all the Jews doing mitzvahs, physical actions, in this world, accumulate until finally the world is refined enough, in its physical state, to be a place where God's will is revealed. Which is also synonymous with the idea of God having a dwelling place in this world. And it's all brought about through our deeds and our actions. Not as an arbitrary reward, 
but as the sum total of, of our actions. So think about it like this. Remember, we're still comforting the Bainini. We started in chapter 35. We're comforting the Bainini. He's questioning, why do I have this modified goal that focuses so much on behavior? And we tell him like this. Why did you start this path to begin with? Why, why did you come here in chapter 1? Ostensibly because you wanted to serve Hashem. Is this a self-help program or is this a derech Hashem, a path to serving God? If you're here for self-improvement, I understand your frustration. You're never going to be a tzaddik. But if you're here to serve Hashem, let's talk about what Hashem wants. You know, it's sort of like in a relationship. Don't love me the way you want to love me. Love me the way I want to be loved. Don't serve God the way you want to serve him. Serve him the way he wants to be served. So why don't you find out what he likes? You want to be a tzaddik. You decided that that's a better way to serve. Who says that's what he wants? First of all, we explained already in chapter 27 at the end, that Hashem has nachas from tzaddikim and from those who struggle. Remember the uh, metaphor of the spicy food and the sweet dessert. But second of all, and this is an even stronger point, not just that Hashem also enjoys the struggle of those who are not internally perfect. This, this point is even stronger than that. The point made here is, what Hashem really, really wants, his innermost desire, the dwelling place here in this world, that can only be brought about by behavior. You're lamenting the fact that your whole Judaism is focused on behavioral perfection because you're not a tzaddik and you cannot attain emotional perfection. But why don't you think about what's more valuable to Hashem? Hashem wants a dwelling place in this world, and that can only be brought about through behavior. So the Alter Rebbe says like this, A soul comes down from the highest heights, from heaven, and automatically, no matter what type of person this soul is going to be born as, this is exile for the soul. Even if this soul will be born to a tzaddik. Because you cannot compare the level of sensitivity and consciousness and awareness that a soul in heaven has to that which a soul in embodiment experiences. You cannot compare them even in the best case scenario where you're talking about a person who's operating on an extremely high level of godly consciousness. So the descent of the soul itself 
means, even in the best case scenario, that the soul is being extremely handicapped as far as its ability to perceive godliness and to emotionally connect to godliness. But what is it gaining? That's what it's losing. What is it gaining when the soul comes into a body? What's the one thing it gains? The ability to act, which it does not have in heaven. So he says, Bubble it. The Tzadik came down here for one thing. You think he came down here to, to feel godliness? You don't come down here to feel it. You stay up there to feel it. The Tzadik's soul came to the world in order to do the mitzvahs, which is the same thing I'm telling you that you're here in this world to do the mitzvahs. Stop feeling like second best. We didn't make up an adapted goal for you because, Nebuch, you weren't able to do the real thing. This is the real thing. Doing mitzvahs with physical objects that make use of physical energy that you acquired from consuming physical food, and using the, 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 the physical uh, mm -hmm. environs that you create, your, 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 your home and your furnishings and your car, and everything that you make use of in your Jewish life. That's what the soul came down here for. And you're questioning the value of this kind of life, the life of a person who will never attain spiritually, emotionally perfect, who will never achieve emotional perfection, but he, he, but he can attain behavioral perfection? The whole thing is about behavior. So then he explains, this is why the in the, in the Yerushalmi, in the Jerusalem Talmud, when it refers to ha-mitzvah, the mitzvah, and doesn't say which mitzvah it means, it's understood to be referring to tzedakah, charity. Why does charity warrant this appellation of being the mitzvah? because charity is the quintessential mitzvah. It is the mitzvah par excellence. What is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is, we could define it in context of chapter 37, as a means through which physicality remains physical but is upgraded from a mundane level to a holy level. Well, if that's our definition for a mitzvah, there's no mitzvah that packs more of a wallop than tzedakah. No pun intended, but tzedakah is where you get the most bang for your buck. Because the amount of physical exertion that goes into earning the money is transformed through the act of giving it away. Furthermore, the potential to use the money to procure 
one's own physical needs is transformed when you give it away. So if you want to talk about transformational effect, tzedakah has the greatest potency in that regard. Which is why also our sages say, Godel tzedakah, tzedakah is great, shemevi asagoula, that it brings about the redemption. We have a whole new appreciation of that saying. It's not some arbitrary thing that, oh, if you're a good boy or a good girl and you put some money in the, in the pushka, then Hashem will reward you with Mashiach. No, it's a cause and effect. Tzedakah is a potent tool for bringing about, for actualizing the redeemed state of this physical world. Okay. We have a few minutes left, and I want to just address something that happens at the end of this chapter. At the end of this chapter, the Alter Rebbe anticipates your yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about the fact that we say Talmud Torah connected Kulam? That the study of Torah is tantamount to all of Torah. Does that not imply that there's a superiority to study? And would that not be a, a contradiction to the emphasis in the past three chapters that has been placed upon action mitzvahs? Oh, I should mention another thing I failed to mention. The Alta Rebbe says it's so important that mitzvahs are action mitzvahs, that even mitzvahs which are verbal mitzvahs, like, let's say, davening, brachas, shma, that, first of all, you actually have to verbally articulate it. You have to move your mouth. You have to actually physically pronounce it. You can't just think the words. So there has to be some actual expenditure of physical energy. But second of all, that's precisely why when Jews daven or when we learn, we really get into it and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aerobic exercise for us, which is what it means, that, that my, all of my bones shall, shall declare your praise, Hashem Micha Hashem who is like you, that all my bones, you should put your whole body into it when you're, when you're davening and when you're learning. So that even mitzvahs, which are less physical, we, we make them physical. Okay. But back to the what about question. What about the fact that the Torah, the study of Torah is tantamount to all of Torah, to the performance of all of Torah? What does that mean? 
Well, we do have a principle that a person who is studying Torah should not interrupt his studies for the sake of the performance of a mitzvah that can be performed by someone else. That's true. If somebody is studying, they should not interrupt Torah study to do a mitzvah that somebody else can do because of the superiority of Torah study. And what is the superiority of Torah study? Well, we remember from chapter 5 or from chapter 23. It has this internal effect. Torah study is transformative of the person. It gets in you. And it works inside of you. On a much deeper level than mitzvahs. Mitzvahs can be superficial. So there's no question that Torah study has a deeper effect on the person. And yet, if there's a mitzvah that nobody else can do, you interrupt Torah study and you go do the mitzvah. Why? Because we're talking about two different things. If you're talking about the potential for self-refinement. There's no question the Torah study is more powerful. But if you're talking about the effect that you have on the world, then there's no question that the physical performance of a physical mitzvah with a physical object is incomparably greater. Yes, there is a place for our own cleaving to Hashem. It's a mitzvah for us to be as close to Hashem as we can. And we do that through Torah study. And therefore, if the mitzvah can be done, the physical mitzvah, action mitzvah can be done without us, continue studying. But if it can't, then we set aside our own personal connection and do that which benefits the world. And that's what it means, loy hamedrash iker elohamaisen. It says in Pirkei Oves that study is not the main thing, but action. What does that mean? That if the ultimate goal is the refinement of the world, bringing this physical plane into a perfected state, in other words, the era of Mashiach, then the main thing is not your personal refinement through Torah study, but the world refinement that you bring about through action mitzvahs. The Altarev mentions an interesting passage in the Gemara, Rav Sheshis, one of the Amaroyim, one of the sages of the Talmud. He was once heard to remark, he said, Hadoi Nachshoi, Rejoice my soul. He was speaking to his soul. Rav Sheshis was speaking to his own soul. He said, Chadoi nafshoi, Lecho karoi, Lecho tanoi. For you, I study scripture. For you, I study Mishnah. What does that mean? Rav Sheshis told his soul. 
rejoice. For you I study scripture. For you I study Mishnah. What's that mean? That Torah study benefits and nourishes your soul. There's no question. And if you want to talk about which which of the two grants you a higher level of refinement, Talmud Torah connected Kulam. That's true. But if you want to talk about the big picture and that which gives Hashem his ultimate desire, which grants fulfillment to Hashem's ultimate desire for a dwelling place in the physical world, then there's no question that it's the physical mitzvahs. So wrapping it up. Regular guy with a regular Yitzhahara has 34 chapters to teach him how to stay focused on behaviors and stay motivated and uh, be behaviorally perfect. He comes in whining about the fact that he just realized that he's still not going to attain internal perfection, he'll never be a tzaddik, and he questions the value of the whole Judaism. And we tell him two things. We say, first of all, I want you to know one thing. If you truly want to be one with Hashem, this is what we said in chapter 35, you cannot become one with Hashem through a subjective experience, like the soul which observes and appreciates godliness, but rather through an objective experience, which happens when the body submits to God's will and is a, an extension of God's will. That's one. So if you want to be really one with God, it's through physical action, even if you were a tzaddik. And two, Hashem created the world for a purpose, which is to have a dwelling place here in the physical realm. And when you want to give that to Him, you do that through a physical action. Again, even if you're a tzaddik. So, if a tzaddik wants to really be one with Hashem, he doesn't do it emotionally, he does it physically. Through, a, through an action. If a tzaddik wants to participate in making a dwelling place in this world for Hashem, he doesn't do it emotionally, he does it physically, through an action. And that's what you, regular guy, Benini, are being included in. And there's absolutely no place for your inferiority complex or for questioning whether or not there's value to this goal. This is the goal. This is the whole goal and this is the purpose for the, for the creation of the world.